Hello there. Hello. Welcome to Almost 30. How's everybody feeling? It's Linz and Krista. I hope we, we find you in a cozy place listening to our show, mm-hmm. maybe on a walk. We're thankful that you're here. We're so glad you're here. You don't need to be 30 or almost 30 to listen. Just a little disclaimer. You can be who you are and where you're at. We started the pod during that time. So just a little info for you. We talk about health, wellness, spirituality, and yeah, we're so grateful you're here. We've been doing this for a while. You could say we're OGs. We're OGs, baby. You could say we're OGs. Inducted into the Hall of Fame of podcasting. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we we are. Period. It was funny. We had someone as a guest and they were like, I am so inspired. Like, I just love your process. Like you sent guys sent the agreement and you, and I was like, they're inspired by like our, our <laughs> back end systems. I was like, hey. oh, sure. <laughs> I mean, it's an important part of, I think, how everything flows and what you see on the outside has That's to be backed true. up by a nice... Nice system on the inside, just like our bodies, which takes us into no, just Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so in this conversation, we talk about the relationship between mental health and diet and nutrition, which I think is super cutting edge. I saw Dr. Uma at an event and I was blown away by just the mm-hmm. concept and the conversation around this yeah. because I know for me that my mental health is directly impacted by what I eat. And there's the conversation around your mental health and your relationship to your body and what your expectations of your body are and your body journey. And, you know, that whole thing, that's a whole mental health conversation. But then there's like the science of mental health related to anxiety, depression, you know, things like Parkinson's or different types of diseases related to the mind or afflictions related to the mind Mm -hmm. that are directly impacted by what we eat. And I'm so about giving people easy ways to support themselves and their mental health, especially when it's something like nutrition. Yeah. You know, I think um, medication for mental health is incredibly important. And so often it's prescribed without taking a honest and thorough look at nutrition, lifestyle, what have you. So I think this is a really important piece of the puzzle that so many of us are just missing because life is so fast. There's so much going on. And I think the thought of food becomes kind of secondary and just like, let's just consume. I'm either hungry or I'm emotional or whatever. And it's just kind of this thing that we we do so mindlessly often. And once I became aware of how food made me feel and made that connection, which sounds like, hey, duh, it was like, wait a second. So I've been feeling like really foggy in the morning and kind of uninspired and like just not myself because of this, what I'm eating late at night or whatever it is, or I'm not getting enough water. Or There's just a whole host of symptoms that you could be experiencing and that also could be exacerbating your mental health. Yeah. As an example, for anyone that has anxiety, you could have an iron deficiency. So for people that, you know, might feel anxious or might experience anxiety, you can think about different minerals to increase in your diet or different things to support you in feeling better. And we all know that mental health is so important to how you show up in the world, to being on purpose, to having relationships with people you love, to having an amazing relationship with yourself Mm -hmm. and a successful career. So all of these like foundational items are key in that. Yes. And I know with me with caffeine or with Mm -hmm. too much sugar, you know, that can really affect my mood. 
If I have sugar in the evening, I can't sleep. I can't do dessert in the evening. And there's just certain foods that I can tell in my body don't really sit well. And I can tell other foods in my body's like, yes, this feels really amazing. Yes. So how can we move closer to that, to supporting us, to being our best selves through these things? Yeah, I find I'm super sensitive to when food has been prepared with care and love. For example, when we were in Jamaica, we went to this place and this guy, Murphy, like prepared this food for us. And he came out and talked with us. And he was so passionate and oh. excited. And I literally tasted it in the food. Mm -hmm. It was just crazy. But it's like that where we're not taking into account the vibrational quality of our food, whether it's like you don't have access to really fresh fruits and vegetables. Maybe it's on a truck for days and days and days. And, and y'all, yes. some is better than none. So like just take that. Mm -hmm. But we also don't know like how it's being handled, like just how it's being grown, whether it's like chickens and freaking cages laying eggs or free range or pasture mm -hmm. raised, like things like that, which, you know, I'm fully aware come with a price. Yes. And why is the most accessible food for I people know. the worst? It's crazy. So it's like if we think about it, it's crazy. we would assume that a farm would have the easiest to access food for the lowest income people yes. because it's a farm, it's close to home, it's in the community. It can be grown from the earth. Mm -hmm. The resources required are labor, sun, water, these other things. But it's like now we have sort of looked at how when we think about food, it's like, well, people need access, but they're getting access to the absolute bottom of the barrel from yeah. a nutritional perspective type of food. And then it's impacting them and not supporting them in becoming anything or yeah. coming out of the socioeconomic structure that they were born into. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot about kids in schools yeah. having access to that type of fresh, nutritious food and, you know, what that looks like in more prestigious schools as opposed to inner city schools or what, what have yeah, you. It's like, how are we expecting our children to learn and grow and feel clear, you know, and like open to, I don't know, I, I'm thinking back and I was in a very privileged position at a private school, but still <laughs> our lunches, like having cookies at 10 minute break, putting me into a coma. Like, Same. it's like, what are we doing? It's weird with children. I feel like at, in that generation, I don't know if it's true now, but it was like, just feed them anything. Yeah. It was kind of like whatever's around. Totally. Like I even thought sometimes with parents, even with kids, it's like they'll eat salmon and broccoli, but then feed the kids whatever. Uh-huh. And it's kind of an interesting concept that with children, we're kind of like, eh. But I don't know. I don't have picky yeah. kids. You know, I can under only imagine what it's like to have a picky child and not have them really wanting to eat. Oh, I had a friend I was having dinner with. She has two kids and she's like, oh, my kids ate so well. And then they spent the summer with my parents, her, mm. their grandparents. And she's like, now they literally won't eat anything. Wow. Because they had access to like wow. everything the grandparents were eating. Wow. Like chicken nuggets and like just unhealthy related stuff for kids. Yeah. And she's like, it's so hard to get them eating back to that. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But we talked a little bit about the schools and how we can improve and support a better, you know, food standard for mm -hmm. children and a better food standard for schools. But I think this conversation is incredibly enlightening. There's so many nuggets of insight and inspiration. And I think the topic of mental health hits us all, whether it hits us directly or it impacts someone that we love and someone else in our life, we can all improve on our mental health and supporting ourselves and being mentally well and even happy. You know, yeah. there's even 
parts of our food that can make us really happy. Mm-hmm. So Dr. Uma's book is called This Is Your Brain on Food. So it's a guide to the surprising foods that fight things like depression, PTSD, ADHD, anxiety, OCD, and more. So you can get that anywhere books are sold. Yep. She's a Michelin-starred chef. She is a Harvard-trained psychiatrist, and she founded and directs the first hospital-based nutritional psychiatry service in the United States. So she's the director of nutritional and lifestyle psychiatry at Massachusetts General Hospital. We also talked about that hospital food. Yeah, we talked about (laughs) hospital food. That's terrifying. Again, you know, talking about people kind of infiltrating spaces and being like, okay, Mm -hmm. I I really, I'm like, what are we going to do about the hospital food? It's like McDonald's in there. It's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. So backwards, upside down world. Mm-hmm. You can follow her on Instagram at Dr. Uma Nadu. So it's D-R-U-M-A-N-A-I-D-O-O. Thank you, Dr. Uma. We appreciate you. And if you love this episode, be sure to share with a friend. That is how we have grown at Almost 30. And we appreciate your listenership so much. If you want to learn more about what we're doing, uh, we have courses and programs and a membership and so much more. Almost 30. Morning Microdose, our newest podcast, our newest baby is blowing up. It's number five on the charts and it is your daily dose of inspiration, of insight, our daily dose of just magic. Mm -hmm. So we have some of the best of the best quotes and clips from Almost 30 ready for you every single day, ad-free at Morning Microdose. So make sure to subscribe and review. Yeah. Thank you for listening. We will see you on the other side. We'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. I swear nine out of 10 couples I talk to these days say that they met on a dating app. And I was actually talking to a couple that we are friends with that met on Match. And I was like, oh my gosh, OG dating app. I love it. I love it. I love it. And they're doing it right. And what they believe is that the most important relationship that you have is with yourself, which I will attest is the foundation to a strong relationship, whether romantic or friendship, any relationship. And honestly, you know, in a world where you can choose to do anything or anyone, mm -hmm, choose you first. And that is how we create real, lasting, authentic relationships. And Match did a really cool study over 5,000 US singles. And it said that there's a new triple threat on the dating horizon. They agreed therapy, self-care, and emotional maturity. Come on, we're so important in a partner. So someone who's interested in therapy goes to therapy, uh, has a self-care routine, make self-care a priority, and emotional maturity. In fact, 87% of singles say it's very important for their partner to prioritize their mental health, and 81% report they engage in self-care at least monthly. Wild, 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 wild. So anyone out there who is feeling like, where are they? Where are they? I highly recommend checking out Match. Hop on the Match app, and I have a feeling that you might match with someone who prioritizes themselves in a very healthy way, making sure that their mental, emotional health is really solid uh, before entering into a relationship. Granted, it doesn't have to be perfect. We all know that, but we got to make sure that that is a priority. If you do you, you already know that the best relationships show up when you show up for yourself first. There's never been a better time to try Match. Download the Match app today.
We've done almost 600 episodes and we haven't had a conversation like this. So I'm really excited. Um, We've kind of picked pieces of the mental health and of nutrition, but together, and I was having lunch with Krista before this and just talking about how, or kind of curious about like, is this kind of new in your world? Is this a new study in your world? Because I feel like intuitively as humans, we might've been like feeling this, you know, as we tried to nourish ourselves or maybe just were eating and had the effects mentally, emotionally, but didn't really connect the dots. So I'm just mm-hmm. curious in your in your world of science, of mm-hmm. uh, more Western medicine, whether this is like revolutionary and how it's been received. Mm. It's definitely more uh, a more nascent field. Uh, nutritional psychiatry is new. And to be honest, I don't think most psychiatrists are practicing this way. Mm-hmm. But also the science around the gut microbiome, which is younger and only uh, close to one to two decades in terms of hardcore scientific data, has really helped to bring forward the information about the food-mood connection and the gut-brain connection, upon which nutritional psychiatry is based. You know, it's interesting because in Ayurvedic terms, they don't talk about nutrition, they talk about nourishment. And I think that that really speaks to your question because... Intuitively, as humans, I think that we've known or we feel better when we eat certain ways. But very few people make that connection to the mind. We often think about uh, how we eat in terms of our waistline or the number on a scale or type 2 diabetes, family hypertension, but we're not connecting it to mental health. And I think that that is where it's powerful to understand that there's so much power at the end of our fork and that we can control it. It's such an autonomous process. So I'm, I'm hoping more people will, will want to do this mm-hmm. and, and join, join my mission. What was your journey to this? Were you in medical school? Like, were you studying psychiatry? What was that moment and journey where you were like, okay, this is what I want to do? It came early on. Uh, there were two two aha moments, so to speak. One was early on in my career as a very junior resident, a patient came in and kind of yelled at me for causing him to gain weight. And I knew from the data I was looking at and the visits on my screen that I could review that I hadn't caused him to gain weight, even though I did prescribe an SSRI, which we know one of the side effects is weight gain. But it had been too short a time and he'd read the side effects and was blaming me. So... I was definitely timid and I said to him, tell me, Bill, what, you know, what, what did you put in that 20-ounce Dunkin' Donuts coffee that you're drinking? Because, of course, it's a favorite in Boston. <laughs> and as he told me, I was able to enter on the computer what, what it was. And I'm not much of a calorie counter, but this was, for me, an easy way to explain something to him. And I said, you know, from that quarter cup of processed creamer, which kind of has junk in it, and eight teaspoons of sugar, which you don't realize because someone else is adding those number of packets for you, you're consuming this number of calories every day. And I bet this is even before you've eaten your breakfast. And he said, yes, you know, this is what I drink every single day. But his eyes lit up because when I showed him the empty calories, he saw something he could change. And, you know, that was one of my my first, I would say, my first aha moment because I saw that he could see and he felt and could see an action step. He could see something that he could do and he was in control. So we then worked together to adjust, make small tweaks to what he was doing and had a long-term therapeutic relationship where he didn't need a higher dose of the Prozac 
he over time is able to include lifestyle measures and exercise more, eat healthier, and eventually lost some weight. So it was a great lesson to me in how powerful it was to interpret information back to a patient. And without that knowledge, because most doctors, one in five medical schools, teach enough nutrition in this country. Some schools do better than others, but, you know, it seemed to me, why aren't we talking about this, especially when I'm prescribing medications that are impacting weight and metabolic health? My second aha moment was when I was diagnosed with cancer and I was facing my first chemotherapy treatment. And for the first time in my journey, I was feeling tremulous and anxious. And this was a new feeling for me. And I had already started and founded my clinic at Mass General in Nutritional Psychiatry. And I thought, you know, part of the fear was I knew the side effects that I was facing. And on the morning of my first treatment, it dawned on me, why am I not doing what I tell my patients to do every single day? Why am I not leaning into what I know? Mm. And that's when I just upped everything I was doing in terms of my diet, my nutrition. And every single week, my doctors would say to me, what are you eating? What, are you, what did you bring for lunch for your chemotherapy appointment? Because they saw me tolerate the side effects so well by how I was eating, how I was approaching it, and by paying attention to certain nutrients, the time of day I was eating, making sure that I was nourishing my body. And so it unexpectedly was another lesson for me that this is a very powerful tool for people mm. to have. I'm actually so curious what that looked like when you were doing chemotherapy and what you were eating and the time of day and why that mattered. I made sure that I was always well-nourished throughout the day. And in other words, you know, chemotherapy can make you feel nauseous. It can give you many different feelings. And I made sure that I went in, you know, you start super early in the morning. And I would make sure that I had my, my favorite, something my grandmother taught me how to make, which was my golden chai. So always something with turmeric, pinch of black pepper to activate it. Um, some form of milk that I had, usually it was either almond or coconut, a drop of honey, uh, something that was very warming and soothing, but also hydration. I would make sure I had a glass of cool water, not cold, not ice cold, but just cool water with a piece of lemon. And then I would make sure that I had a nutritious breakfast. So for me, it was either a tofu omelet, but with lots of veggies in it so that I didn't go to my appointment and start that IV hungry. And that was important. Um, on days that I need needed blood tests before my chemo, I would just take that with me and eat it later. And then for lunch, you know, you really should make your own food at home when you're in chemotherapy. And even though the cafeteria at the hospital was great, you really are su it's suggested that you don't eat anything there. So I'd take myself a really big nourishing salad, make sure that I had enough protein, a dressing with, you know, olive oil, nothing that different or special, but I really made sure that these were absolute components of my day. I'd have healthy snacks, a piece of fruit, some blueberries, or a piece of extra dark chocolate. So I really incorporated brain foods in a very active way. And then for dinner, um, either something like a cauliflower steak, but I'd incorporate my spices because I have a deep connection to spices. I know from Ayurveda how healing they can be. I love the, the taste and flavor. So I'd have like a cauliflower steak with some veggies on the side or some. make sure I had some lentils or legumes. Some of the recipes in my book, for example, the lentil or the dal with spinach is, is something I would eat a lot of because it was nourishing. It had folate. It had all of the fiber I needed. So it would be variations of those meals, but I think that keeping myself 
well-nourished, hydrated, eating regularly, and keeping the meal simple and with spices that were very soothing to my mind and body were really key. In other words, I found the simpler I went, the better it was for me. How often do you see this? Because it seems like there's such a correlation to Ayurveda. And have you found that within your work that a lot of the principles in Ayurveda are tested and are proven by science and your work? You know, I think the, the fields are sort of separate, right? So I'm not a practicing Ayurvedic practitioner, but I know some of the principles. And I definitely think there's this overlap. I think that what nutritional psychiatry has done is through the science behind the gut microbiome, we've been able to show that there's a real impact on what you eat and the impact on the gut microbes. And they are such a huge component of our system. So I can't say, well, Ayurveda speaks to many principles around spices, foods being warm and timing and things like that. I feel like what the gut microbiome has done and the science behind it is it complements these sciences. For example, you know, Chinese medicine, for that matter, has also for eons been speaking about various principles that are holistic and integrated. I feel like all of this is now coming together. Uh, you know, when I was um, still in training, an example of this is um, Herbert Benson brought forth the mind-body medicine clinic at Mass General. And it used to be a very small center that uh, talked about mindfulness and the connection of the body, mind, and spirit. And it has now grown to one of the most popular clinical services at Mass General. He passed recently, and, you know, it's been funded by the Red Sox Foundation and others. They've trained clinicians all over the world in mind-body medicine practice. I think everything has a trajectory and a time, and I feel that that's where we were at early on in mm. nutritional psychiatry, bringing together other fields that have actually taught people different principles, but we kind of bringing it forward in an integrated way. You mentioned earlier your patient who was on Prozac and blamed you for the weight gain. I'm curious your approach when you see patients whether there is this combination of medication and nutrition, or if it's nutrition first and lifestyle first, and then we go to medication. I'm just kind of curious, like your high-level approach to that. So my, my, uh, the clinic that I founded is really almost like a tertiary care clinic. So it, it, it's based on referrals. And for that reason, individuals who come to me are looking for that nutritional psychiatry approach, a more yeah. individualized, really precision-based nutrition plan. That being said, I'm still capable and able to, and still do on occasion, prescribe medications. But I'm very much a food-first person and use medications, um, which I have to say have saved the lives of many of my patients, use them when necessary. I balance it up with making sure we have an integrated approach for every single person that I see, that I'm asking them from what they drink to how they sleep to are they exercising, are they spending time outdoors, what are they doing? So that it's, a, it's very much a holistic approach that's integrated with their other forms of health that they're taking. Me, I'm a huge uh, believer in, in psychotherapies in the different forms. So I always want my patients to be engaged in some form of therapy. Not all of them are, but when they come to me, my role working with them is to consult with their team. It could be a psychiatrist, it could be a primary care doctor, uh, infectious medicine disease specialist, whoever it is, but really put together a plan for them that will uplift their mental well-being. 
So what is the connection between mental health and food? Like, how would you say they're connected? You know, it goes back to that gut-brain connection. The chapter one of This Is Your Brain on Food is where I speak about the gut-brain romance. Mm -hmm. And I called it that for a reason, you know. (laughs) The romance has good days and bad days, and so does the gut-brain connection. It starts really in the embryo, because the the gut and brain arise from the exact same cells in the human embryo. So from that fertilized egg, after the, the sperm meets the ovum and forms a zygote, the cells divide, the embryo is developing into a body form. These two organs develop. They move far apart in the body, but they remain connected anatomically, biochemically and physiologically by the vagus nerve, which is the 10th cranial nerve. And I like to call the vagus nerve a two-way text messaging system, allowing for these chemical messages to be transported back and forth between these two organs. But, you know, we've forgotten because the gut and the brain are far apart in the body that they are connected. The way that food interacts with this is that when we eat the breakdown products of food on a day that we're eating a healthy salad or a healthier meal are more positive breakdown products like short-chain fatty acids. These fend off inflammation. They help the environment of the gut microbiome. On a day that we are, or say we're a person who eats the standard American diet called the sad diet for a reason, or a lot of fast, fast foods, the breakdown products are more toxic to that gut environment. And those toxic breakdown products start to break down the single cell layer of the gut mucosa, which is a lining of cells with very structured tight junctions, but it's a single cell lining thick. These damaging substances start to penetrate and break that, and over time, that leads to inflammation, dysbiosis, and something we call leaky gut. And that's what's problematic. So if you are pursuing a diet that's less healthy, ultimately you're going to end up with dysbiosis. What is dysbiosis? Dysbiosis is an imbalance of the gut environment. So when we think about it, there are trillions of microbes that live uh, in the gut microbiome. And when we use the term microbiome, we refer to the encompassing genetic material. Those microbes, they're good guys and bad guys. So when eating largely fast foods, uh, for example, we're feeding the bad guys and they thrive. And that imbalance between the good microbes and bad microbes leads to what we call dysbiosis. It's just an imbalance of that environment. The, the bad balance is toward inflammation in the gut. And because the gut and brain are connected, inflammation in the gut leads to inflammation in the brain. And that sort of forms that ecosystem where we start to understand. And I see in my clinical practice through dietary measures, when you start to eat more anti-inflammatory foods, when you start to lean into those healthier foods, when you tweak that diet away from those fast foods and coffee with a ton of, you know, I have no issue drinking coffee if you like it and you can tolerate it, but it's what we add to our coffee that makes it Um, less healthy for us. Mm. So all of those things lead to an imbalance in the gut microbiome. So because the brain and the gut are connected, that imbalance in the gut microbiome affects the brain. Does it communicate through the vagus nerve? So when that breakdown of the single cell layer happens, what the leaky gut is that penetration of those toxic substances into the circulatory system for one. And then inflammation is basically what is going to be connecting these two organs now. And one organ is inflamed and then the other organ becomes inflamed. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the vagus nerve is also responsible for 
the text messaging around chemical messages, right? Because the other thing we forget is that serotonin we often call the happiness hormone, but 90 to 95% of serotonin is made in the gut and the receptors are in the gut. So if you've ever had a friend or family member take something like Prozac or another SSRI medication, a selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor, very often in the first couple of weeks, they have gastrointestinal discomfort as a side effect, and that's because of the location of the receptors. So it's it's just helpful for us to understand that so much related to mental health is also located in the gut, whereas we used to think about psychiatry and mental health as just a heads-up approach, you know, be like above the neck. It's actually so different now as we understand more. And what is the way to repair like a leaky gut? Is it just good diet or how does someone begin to do that if they're experiencing these So symptoms? it's definitely a multi-pronged approach. Diet is one of them. And I say that because things like, um, you know, an argument with your husband or a bad day at work, that level of stress can also has been shown can impact those gut microbes and affect them and they change and evolve and start to form different breakdown substances. Therefore, it's not diet is a very large part of it. And we know from research that healing of that gut can take on an average about 28 days. So as you start to consume a healthier diet, you start to work on your stress. Personally, I really believe in a more integrated approach. So I will have someone who's not feeling great, even if they can't exercise yet because they're too depressed, I'll have them walk to buy the newspaper, walk to buy a cup of coffee or take the dog out for a walk. So they're getting outdoor time. They're starting to move their body starting to get out of bed and really start to be a little bit more functional because it's it's it, you have to meet the person where they're at. But that becomes part of the approach as, as well as stress management, practicing mindfulness, sleeping well, making sure that you're sleeping well. All of these are key. It's really hard to find the perfect gift. And I've just taken kind of a informal survey of family and friends and just noticed that skincare and body care is like a surefire awesome gift for anybody. And if it's clean, I mean, see you later. So that's why this holiday season, I am giving the gift of Osea to some of my nearest and dearest friends and family. Osea is a California-based skincare and body care brand that has been making clean, vegan, and cruelty-free skincare products for over 25 years. They use seaweed as their hero ingredient because it's super nutrient-rich. It has endless benefits, including anti-aging and and moisturizing. I absolutely love their products. I freak out when I start to run out. My Probably my favorite is the Andaria Algae Body Oil. Oh my God. You've probably seen this go TikTok famous. It is best-selling. It is leaving your skin so supple, so glowy, so hydrated, so healthy. I am so excited for you. Their products are clinically proven, truly an unmatched body care experience, both skincare and body care products. And this winter season, you want to make sure that your skin is staying healthy. I know it's hard out there in the winter. So for a gift that will impress, check out Osea's bestseller, Minis Collection. Right now, our listeners get 10% off your first order with promo code almost30 at oceamalibu.com. You'll even get free samples. They're so good about that with every single order. And orders over $50 get free shipping. That's 10% off at 
O-S-E-A-Malibu.com. Promo code is almost 30 at checkout. Enjoy. You mentioned, you know, the example of the fight with the husband or the, you know, something, a stressful occurrence. So what's happening chemically when that happens in the body? What the research has shown is that on a day that we are, um, let's just call it a stressful, a stressful day, we're having a stressful day, you know, things like cortisol in your body showed up. This impacts the HPA axis. This impacts the microbes because the microbes, they function as part of our body. So for example, they're involved in hormone production. They're involved in sleep and circadian rhythm, which is our internal body clock. They're involved in vitamin production. They're involved in mental health and neurotransmitters, involved in so many things. So when we are stressed in that way, they become involved in this interaction. And basically, it leads to more inflammation in the body. It leads to potential for dysbiosis, potential for leaky gut, and ultimately impacts our overall health, but definitely our mental health too. What are, just quickly, what are microbes? Now that we know a little bit more, and the science is always evolving. The microbes can be bacteria, um, fungi, protozoa, archaea, and a couple of other types that live in that gut environment. And they mostly there to perform those functions. They're largely bacteria. And most of the studies that we do are actually on bacteria. But that's the sort of overarching term for them is microbes. And can we, can we talk specifics about the types of food, beverages that you're seeing that are causing either leaky gut or just mm-hmm. general inflammation, yeah. just so people are aware. Because I feel like the coffee example is such a good one where we're putting certain things in our coffee. It's an everyday thing. Yeah. We're kind of not thinking about it. We're thinking it's empty calories. So can you give some examples? So let's start there. And I'll use the coffee example as we can go back to coffee later on for other reasons. But we often are using added sugars and added and refined sugars in a way that we don't recognize. For example, going back to that patient, the processed creamer he was having at the Dunkin' Donuts store had a ton of fillers, ingredients, not only processed ingredients, but stabilizers in that and added sugar. Um, but the added sugars often in things that we don't realize, like savory foods, you know, salad dressings, ketchup. Uh, store-bought pasta sauces. So that's a big category because one of the things we've uncovered, certainly in the U.S., is that this sugar in so much of our food, especially in the form of high fructose corn syrup or other forms that you, we don't recognize. Um, I like people to know, one of the things I like to, to teach my clients is that four grams of sugar is one teaspoon because our, our food labels are in grams, but we cook and if you're follow any cookbooks or recipes, it's in pounds and ounces. So we don't know how to interpret our own food labels. But that can be powerful because you've heard me say blueberries are healthy. But if you have a blueberry yogurt, you can have up to eight teaspoons of sugar. But you only know that if you can divide that number by four and understand how many teaspoons. So added and refined sugars is a huge, a huge one. Then there's these processed sort of seed oils and industrial oils, very frequently used in fast food restaurants because they're more economical, they can be reused or they shouldn't be, but all of the stuff that happens. And so those are very pro-inflammatory. What they do is they increase our omega-6 fatty acids and that tips the balance between omega-6 and omega-3 toward causing inflammation in the body. That's another big one. And then you have artificial sweetness, and this can be a tough category because people are trying to come up sugar and they go to going to a sugar-free or low-sugar alternative, but sometimes the um, artificial sweetener can actually be worse for the microbiome. So they 
one has to be careful with that as well. And then you have the wrong types of fats. So those, you know, fats, the hydrogenated oils, the unhealthy fats that you find in, say, uh, shelf-stable baked goods, things like that. Mm-hmm. And you want to try to stay away from those. So basically, it's some some categories of food that you won't be surprised to see processed, ultra-processed junk foods on that list, but not for the reasons that you originally thought, because often we think, oh, I consume too many of those cookies or whatever that is, it's my waistline that I should worry about. But actually, these are impacting us on a much deeper level. Um, not just weight, they're impacting our gut health, impacting our brain health, um, and they can be pretty disruptive to our system as a whole. Something we talk about is sunflower oil and sunflower yeah. lectin, which is something that I'm seeing in almost everything. Yeah. Do you think that was like an evolution within the food industry where we're starting to get privy to vegetable oils and now we're people aren't aware that sunflower lectin and sunflower oils kind of the same effect? Or what are your thoughts on that? You know, I, I think that one of the things in nutritional science and, and as I do my work, my research and uh, clinical work in, in nutritional psychiatry that I struggle with is dealing with food companies, food labels, and what savvy ingredient can they add? Yes. There's a, a list of more than 250 other names for sugar on food labels. And one of my favorite examples to quote is brown rice syrup because people think about brown rice as a more as a maybe a healthy alternative with maybe a little bit more whole grain, but it's actually brown rice syrup is just is just sugar. Cliff bars. Yeah. <laughs> Cliff bars are literally brown rice syrup bars. <laughs> They're insane. Right. right, and so understanding the sugars are a problem, and then that the oils are a problem. So you know if you're going to come up with a new oil or a uh, one that is perceived to be healthier by the public, you might be inserting it in a way that not everyone has understood that. One example of this is a bottle of vegetable oil. Well, vegetable oil may be largely soy, and that is a pro-inflammatory oil. So that's where I think, you know, dealing with food companies, how things are labeled, they're not breaking the law. They're all within the law. But the issue is, as consumers, we have to be more savvy because if you think about it, Food companies want to sell food. Mm-hmm. So, they, they, you know, they, their labels and their marketing is all going to be around that versus what I think we need to be educated about, which is, you know, those gaps, understanding sugar, understanding the wrong types of oils, or not maybe wrong is a, is a strong word, but the, the oils that are going to cause inflammation. So once in a while, if you have it, it's not going to kill you. But I would I would say that if that's consistently your diet, that's what you're cooking with, or... You're thinking, you know, I'm fine. I'm not gaining weight on fast foods. Well, it's it's hurting you in other ways. Mm. Yeah, the the oil thing is so interesting. And I, I don't think it's a conspiracy, but I think about like, so is it the economic choice of like, it's a cheaper ingredient and that's why they're using it? Or is like the sunflower oil companies like, mm-hmm. please use this and mm-hmm. like, well... Like subsidized to, or something. Yeah, give it to you for you know, a I special know, price. I don't know the the facts on that. What I what I do do know around choices, say made in fast food restaurants, is they use the most economical oil. Yeah. Soy, soy or corn? I I don't know exactly because they vary. They vary. They some of them use blends. It it differs. What I can say is that um, it could be marketing. I'm not sure mm-hmm. specifically what the sunflower oil people have done, but. It's definitely cheaper to use some of these processed vegetable oils. And many of us don't realize that they're pro-inflammatory. So they, but then it, there's more to the story because if you think about fast foods, uh, fast food french fries have added sugar in them. And more and more research has shown that, you know, 
hundreds of millions of dollars go toward research and development of these foods, especially studies of processed and highly processed foods. And things like adding flavor, right, it could be very subtle. You don't taste a French fry and taste sugar. It's very subtle, but it's there to boost that flavor. Unfortunately, what those ingredients do is they tap into a craving cycle in our brain and body because sugar taps into the same circuits as dopamine and the reward system with dopamine. So a street drug like cocaine will tap into the same dopamine pathways. That's one of the ways in which cravings get set up. So it's a lot of subtleties with things like fast food. It could be the oil. It could be that added sugar to french fries. It's, it's and besides the overarching fact that, that it's highly processed. Mm. Just one more question on the fast food piece um, related to like the energy of food. Because sometimes I, I mean all the time, I feel the difference whether I'm making my food or someone mm-hmm. I know who's putting a lot of love into the food. Yeah. And then I think about, you know, just kind of like quickly processed mm-hmm. foods, whether it's yeah. at a fast food place or not, or even at a restaurant sometimes, yeah. Yeah. you know, it just has a different quality energetically. Yeah. I know it's probably hard to do any research, but have you kind of thought about that or mm-hmm. experienced that yourself? I have. Um, and, and both. So a couple of things that I can share on this topic um, this is a very large database study done at Harvard when I, I was probably much younger. So, But this very large database study looked at the fact that when you prepare your meals at home, you consume fewer calories. And you consume fewer calories even if you're not following any special diet. So just there's something about eating out, maybe it's the environment, maybe it's the glass of wine, whatever it is, you definitely consume more calories. That's one. But the other thing that speaks to this point is studies of the blue zones. For example, in Sardinia, uh, it was one of the blue zones. You know, they found that drinking two glasses of wine and eating the Mediterranean diet was very helpful for longevity. But when you look at the actual context of the situation, it wasn't just that great diet being largely Mediterranean. It was also in the sense of community, eating with family, having a sense of joy around their food, looking forward to the meal at the end of the day, and not, you know, standing at a desk eating alone, or as I did as a resident frequently, on the run, between patients, between my pager going off or my cell phone, you know, totally unhealthy eating habits. So context is also important. And I think that comes into what you're saying or asking that question, Um, the context of food, how it's prepared, the kind of love and nourishment one gets from how, you know, what might feel, you know, to have something lovingly prepared versus, you know, the bag at a fast food restaurant. Caffeine. I want to talk about caffeine, especially as it relates to mental health. This is just my perception and what I perceive. It's like so often I feel like I hear people talk about having anxiety And as someone that's experienced that in my life too, I can relate. But I also perceive so many people drink so much caffeine and look at their phones all the time. I'm like, what is causing what? Like, is it the actions of continually having a stimulant in your body and looking at your phone and never connecting to yourself in nature? Or is it like an actual brain chemical reaction? So Mm. I guess my question is, with something like anxiety, I think when you talked about depression and the use of SSRIs as something that originates in the gut, we have science around the serotonin levels. With anxiety, is there science around anxiety being something that is a chemical imbalance? And then two, what is the relationship between anxiety and what people are doing from a lifestyle perspective? 
The, you know, there's, there's certainly evolving evidence around um, the serotonin hypothesis and um, anxiety. We know that many of the medications... What's the serotonin hypothesis? So with, with serotonin, you know, the, the initial belief, certainly during my training, was that an imbalance, a chemical imbalance is what leads to several conditions like depression and anxiety, just to name a couple of them. And recently, some research from the UK has really re-looked at the serotonin hypothesis. And I don't, I think the jury's still out on this. I feel this is where I really feel strongly about the nuances in nutritional psychiatry, because this does not mean I'm going to tell someone who's on an SSRI medication to stop taking it. It could be life-saving for that, for that person. So I think my point being that science is evolving and changing all the time. But what we currently understand we've been taught so far is that there is this chemical imbalance and anxiety is certainly one of those conditions that is helped by medications that either calm down the GABA systems, so those are usually the anti-anxiety medications, but also selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors which calm down the body as a whole but also tap into that serotonin. So if we think about it that way, I feel that what, what is happening with us, so we'll talk about coffee in a second, but what's happening with our phones is I feel that, you know, it's tapping into that very same reward pathway of sort of almost always being on, constantly checking and not being able to put the phone down. And, and it's interesting when you now, now on an iPhone, you, you get your screen report every week and always pay attention to that because it's something I want to be checking in with myself about because I have these times and days of the week when I'm just so busy. And I'm spending a lot of time on my mobile phone as a way of communicating with work and what I'm doing. But I know it's not the best for me. And I know it's not, not great for my brain. With coffee, coffee on its own is actually a substance that's rich in many, many polyphenols. So coffee itself is positive for the brain. It can be good for the heart. There have been books written about coffee and its positive effects. But in mental health, there's another nutritional psychiatry nuance, which is Coffee may not may or may not be good for you because of the caffeine being one of the substances. This is separate to what we add to it, because it may cause your heart to race. It may make you feel jittery. It may, you know, a little bit may just not make you feel well. In which case, I talk about body intelligence. So if it doesn't work for you. Don't have it. Just don't come off any. If you're a coffee drinker, come off it slowly. You know, but if you just had that half a cup and it made you feel jittery, it's totally fine to stop and just find something that works better for you. So it's body intelligence. Studies of anxiety have actually shown that sticking to less than 400 milligrams a day can be tolerated. But again, if you don't feel well and it increases your anxiety, then you shouldn't be drinking it. Another suggestion I have about drinking coffee is have it early in the day. If not, it impacts your sleep cycle. And the fourth is what we add to it. You know, Plain coffee is usually fine, but think if you're adding a creamer, think about what you're adding, what's in that creamer, and how you're sweetening. I have this um, this funny story from a few years ago when uh, a very popular coffee store made this very colorful drink. And literally every patient walking into my office was carrying one of these, and I was like, okay, I know this is not healthy. How do I, like, how do I not, be, not be judgmental but, but prove a point? Yes. So eventually I went to the store, I ordered it on my app because that also allowed me to check the nutritional information. And like the smallest size that didn't have any extra stuff on it and the non-fat version had 58, 57 or 58 grams of sugar. 
in the smallest size. Wow. And when I found that out, I was able to interpret that back to my patients instead of saying, oh, why are you drinking that? You know, you never want to feel, make someone feel judged. It was more, how can I share this in a way that's educational? Like, would you, if you had that cup of coffee at home or that drink or however it was made, would you be adding that number of teaspoons? Mm-hmm. And of course, the answer was no. And that was you know, way to think about, I'll have it less often, I'll have it once a month, whatever it was. I live here in New York, and I feel like I see high schoolers walking around with venti, you know, Starbucks, whatever it is, and like the cream and the the whipped cream and all these things. And I'm mainly thinking about like the high levels of caffeine and usually it's like after school. Mm -hmm. So it's like later in the day, disturbing their sleep cycles. I can imagine Mm -hmm. they're on their phones underneath their covers up in bed at night like like I would do. Yeah, I'm just kind of like blown away like and where that obsession comes from. It's like the sugar-caffeine combination too for someone young. it, it, it It could definitely be the sugar that they're attracted to. Yeah. It could be how attractive it is. It could be the fashion. It could be the yeah. socialization. Yes. What, you know, what other it's also like seeing doing. every parent. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, and what are the parents doing? So I think it's a few different things. But, but to break it down for a second, interestingly, a study showed that coffee can help symptoms of ADHD in moderation mm-hmm. in adults. I'm moderation not is how many milligrams? So they, the study didn't necessarily give you a number of milligrams, uh-huh. but I would, I would get some guidance around lower than 400 milligrams because that was a well-done study in terms of sort of mental health symptoms. And so I think the study did something like one or two cups, but early in the day, and these were in adults. So I would say that, you know, again, it comes down to how that makes you feel. I think with, with kids, it gets more complicated. I think there's so much in the socialization process. I, I wish that, you know, they they ate and drank healthier things or they understood that that what's fashionable may not be the best for their bodies or their brain or that they realized like that example even the non-fat no foam version that I ordered to test the app you know could have a ton of ingredients that are not good for them yeah my dream is that by the time our kids are in school that, you know, there is options at school that are, I don't know actually what's happening in schools right now, but what I remember mm-hmm. from when I was in school, for example, we would have these like barely baked cookies, 10 minute like, oh, break yeah. at 10 a.m. after my first two mm-hmm. classes, we would go downstairs have a soft baked cookie and mm-hmm. I would go to my third period class and like wonder why I'm falling asleep. And it's those types of things that, you know, I'm like, where does it begin? And if the school is focused on having those healthier options to support their brains, their bodies, to support optimized learning and interaction and mental health, I think that's a huge first step. And I'm just wondering like where, what needs to change? Is it budget? Is it awareness? Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I don't know. I think it could actually be all of those things. Um, one example is years ago when when schools lost some funding in terms of school lunches. What happened was that when the government uh, removed some of the funding, big companies moved in and put in their vending machines. So kids had access to the sodas and the snacks. So it's, it's so many factors that are competing. I 
feel that one of the ways at a grassroots level that we can intervene is as as families, as parents, as communities, simple things like children being aware of community gardens or mm-hmm. even, even if they live in an apartment, is there a way to grow herbs or is there a school garden that they can participate in? So they understand from the ground up that, you know, eating healthy foods is a way of life. So part of it is how are we eating at home and none of us is perfect, but if we are encouraging those healthy habits... Another intervention is, you know, there's there's government, there's food companies, but I feel that one of the things I do is I work with several nonprofit uh, food-related companies that are trying to educate the school system, change the understanding of what the kids are eating so that children actually learn to love broccoli and how can we do that and how can we create you know little animated videos that are interesting to them and they see oh this has so many great ingredients that's also great for my brain i think that becomes key because we know the developing brain is hugely important so what you're saying is key to starting to change the system but the intervention point is not clear it could be at so many different levels so always think about it as what what can i in my role in my, in my mission do. And one of the ways that we're trying to affect change is through education and really helping both families, communities, and parents educate their own so that the kids don't want to eat the junk they might be given at school yes. and they can recognize it, you know. And mm-hmm. I think that the school systems also do need to maybe revamp that. But I feel that way about the hospital mm-hmm. I know. as well because, you know, That's go to the wild. cardiac ward. Yeah. When you go to the cardiac ward, you know, and you watch what patients are given to eat, it's 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 a complete. What is um, that? What do you think this is like that relationship? That disconnect. Yes, it's it's such a disconnect between probably it's crazy. budget. Yeah, um, you know how the hospital is run, where the dollars going to. You know, yes. what should the patients be eating? Where the and money is going is like because where's the money going? Because right. there's money coming into hospitals. Yeah, probably more than ever. Same with schools. Like there's a budget. There's not great budgets. But there's a budget. But there's a budget. And it mostly goes to things that are already subsidized, which is the dairy industry, which is, you know, corn and soy. So the government subsidizes them, which provides a cheap way to bring dairy and those types of products into schools. So yeah, it's just heartbreaking because it's almost like there's like a purposeful block between it, where it's almost like, do do you perceive this? This is what I perceive, where it's like, that's not science-backed enough, maybe, especially in the hospitals? Do they perceive that this information doesn't have enough science backing it up yet to prove it? And they believe that medication and drugs is sort of the way? I do think the medical system is flawed and suffering from the perspective of really not embracing the food as medicine movement, Uh, lifestyle medicine doctors, functional medicine doctors, integrative practitioners, individuals who are thinking out of the box about lifestyle and the checklist of it's not just do you smoke or don't you smoke it's you know what are you doing in your lifestyle are you exercising mm-hmm. are you doing this are you doing that I, so i think that's that is one part of it but we're also dealing with forces about how things are subsidized how food companies run where the food supply chain is coming from those are those are bigger issues related mm-hmm. to government so you know in the mission that i have which is really to help improve the mental health of humanity. My feeling is the power is at the end of each of our forks. We have to make the decisions differently because it's, it. For, you know, in my lifetime, I don't think I can take on mm-hmm. all of the food companies and government to start to adjust where the dollars go because I do strongly believe if you follow the money, 
<laughs> probably figure mm-hmm. this out. But how can we do that? Or how, what, what's the method of doing that? And I help clinicians, which is one of the things I'm doing, learn to really use food as medicine in a mental health prescription way, to include that in every visit as a discussion that they have, as a discussion point without first pulling out their prescription pad. So they need to assess, is it appropriate? Because someone may be too sick or be too severely ill at a given point. They may need a prescription. But do you still include that discussion? Another way is, you know, food advocacy. And how do we advocate for community gardens, teaching kids something different about food, um, working with companies that even create these fun videos for kids so that they're learning about food and they're saying to mom, I want broccoli, you know, because this is, has all these really cool substances in them and they're going to help my body and brain or whatever it might be. I feel like to me, those are forming solutions that we have in front of us that we can do. And it may be a little bit more achievable. Are they hard? Yes. And, and they have challenges associated. But whether it's a hospital, whether it's a school, whether it's government, it's a lot of this is driven by, by money. And the other thing I would say is that with hospitals, you know, I think that the doctors are just not taught nutrition. One in five medical schools teaches nutrition. And I think maybe some schools are doing a little better than others. But we ourselves are not taught that if you're interested, you have to learn it elsewhere. So some of that is all a, a part of this problem. Mm-hmm. So one of my favorite gifts that we got post-wedding was from a friend of mine, and she got me a print of one of our wedding photos on canvas from canvasprints.com. And I was like, how the heck did I not know about this place? (laughs) So I went perusing. I was like, oh my gosh. Okay. Perfect gift for anyone, any personal meaningful gift that you want to give someone. Oh my gosh. They turn the photo memories on your phone or really anywhere into the perfect heartfelt gift for anyone on your list. They offer the highest quality canvas prints at affordable prices, like super affordable. I'm so surprised. And the interface is super easy to use. So you just upload your image, you choose the canvas size, and then you check out. And you can even add like a floating frame if you want, which is beautiful. I just, I received as a gift, just a normal canvas and it's gorgeous. Just honestly, use your imagination. You're going to have so much fun. And they have canvas sizes up to 60 by 60, which is pretty darn big. They also offer metal prints, glass prints, poster prints, foam tiles, photo tiles, wall displays. You're going to have a blast creating. So if you're looking for a gift for someone, look no further. Canvasprints.com, baby. Super great customer service with 100% money back guarantee. It's going to ship really quick, three to five business days. So for our listeners, I'm excited for you. They have a special offer just for you. Go to canvasprints.com and use the code ALMOST30 to get 25% off your entire order of canvas prints, canvas wall displays, metal prints, photo tiles, photo blankets and pillows, and so much more. You're going to find a perfect holiday gift for anyone on your list and save with this amazing offer. That's canvasprints.com. Use the code ALMOST30 for 25% off your entire order. Did you know that the drugs we take to manage period cramps were invented in the 1950s and exclusively tested on men? (laughs) What? It's literally outrageous that there hasn't been more innovation when it comes to periods. 
Deloon is changing that with dietitian formulated solutions that relieve our symptoms while actually supporting cycle health. Because our cycles affect every aspect of our wellness, period pain, mood, sleep, skin, metabolism, energy, and more. I, I don't know about you, but you know, some some months I'm like, oh my gosh, like everything has to stop, but it really can't because I'm experiencing, you know, really bad cramps or headaches, fatigue, you, bloating, you name it. I've really tried a lot of things. And while I think I've gotten most of my symptoms under control, it doesn't mean they still don't happen and kind of disrupt my flow. So I was really excited to find Deloon and recommend it to a lot of my friends and they have been absolutely loving it. I was talking to a friend the other day that experienced like really, really bad periods, cramps and just all these symptoms. And she was so happy uh, to try Deloon. She's noticed that her symptoms have subsided. They don't last as long. They're not as intense and she can really just be in her life, which is really nice. So Deloon Nutritional Solutions are dietitian formulated to work with your cycle health, not against it. It'll help you all month long while also relieving your cramps and PMS during your period. Deloon creates effective drug-free supplements for period cramps, PMS, and optimal cycle health. So you can get the relief you need naturally, which I'm all about, and start feeling like your best self. So if you want high potency, fast acting supplements for your period cramps, PMS, and really getting your cycle health in its prime top condition, like 92% of their customers report that relief, try Deloon. Leave bad periods behind and start the new year off with 23% off. Go to cyclehealth.com slash almost 30 and use the code almost 30 to get 23% off plus free shipping. If Deloon isn't the right match for you, your money back is guaranteed. That's cyclehealth.com slash almost 30 and use the code almost 30 to get 23% off plus free shipping. Have you gotten any pushback from your peers or you know, the institutions in which you've worked in just based on your work and how nascent it is, but how I think how powerful it is and it will be. I've been in a very, very fortunate position thus far that, you know, I have felt very supported by where I work, by my colleagues in bringing forth new ideas that are definitely not being practiced by the everyday uh, psychiatrist. And I feel very blessed for that. And part of my mission has really been not to speak without having some evidence behind it. In This Is Your Brain on Food, I reviewed probably well over a thousand references to correlate that any fact quoted in the book is related to some scientific research. And I ended up including more than 550 references so that people understood this is no longer just a soft science that the science behind the gut microbiome, that the science around uh, research in, in whichever condition in mental health, there's something evolving. Mm -hmm. It's not, of course, 10 years from now, we'll be much further along. But um, I feel that people have been supportive. I feel that where the gap is, 
is that not enough practitioners are working this way. And to resolve that or to help that, I've created a training program at Mass General to help, um, and this will be a virtual on a learning management system that's virtual so that we can actually reach practitioners all over the world to help them incorporate principles of nutrition and mental health into their practice. And they don't have to be just uh, psychiatrists. They can actually be other practitioners. But the understanding that these are important principles to integrate into into your health and your, your visit with that patient. I think when we talk about mental health, it feels like people mostly talk about depression and anxiety, but there's so many more, you know, there's schizophrenia, bipolar. Do you find that the data is different for different types of mental health disorders or mental health issues? The data is different. The incidence is different. The uh, correlation between all of these conditions could be different. The unifying factor and the thread through all of that is that they can actually all be impacted by how we eat. You know, a very fascinating study in schizophrenia looked at, this was an animal study, and this study looked at transplanting the, actually it involved animals and humans, transplanting the microbiome of individuals with schizophrenia and active symptoms into the microbiome of a mouse who had not been, so germ-free mice, they had not been exposed to microbes or germs. feces? Um, that would have been a transplant. It would have yeah. been fecal transplant. So they did that and they transplanted part of the microbiome into the germ-free mice and the mice developed symptoms of schizophrenia. So I think what's powerful to understand is that all conditions in mental health can be impacted by diet, some to lesser degrees than others. So I don't feel the first line of treatment is schizophrenia or bipolar disorders, which can be much more severe and life-threatening. Maybe food, but can it be a part of the solution? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's mounting evidence to show that. So I think if we consider food as part of that solution, it can be helpful for many of those conditions. I've heard similar studies with autism as well, like children with autism mm-hmm. and altering their diet and experiencing an improved, yeah, improved symptoms and mm-hmm. experiences. That, yeah. Mm-hmm. Have you heard that as well? I have. So autism can definitely be impacted by diet. It's not the only factor, sure. but cleaning up the diet, improving it um, from any age, I think is super beneficial. Mm-hmm. So You've mentioned before, so we, we develop in, when we were talking about the embryo, turns into a zygote, right? So the, the sperm and the, sperm um, and the embryo the come together. Come together as the zygote. For the zygote. Yeah, the fertilizer. So if you're being developed in your mother's body, yeah. like I guess I, the question is, how much do your genes impact your mental health? Genetics are definitely part of mental yeah. health and we would never want to ignore that. Genetics are part of it. Your mother's microbiome, what mm-hmm. she's eating, uh, what what is in her body, all of that is impacting the development of the embryo. So genes are definitely a part that we don't want to ignore. In fact, like I said, when we say microbiome, including the genetic material amongst the microbes mm-hmm. in the gut. So a very big part of it as well. I think that we don't have solutions through medications. You know, for example, research has shown in, we mentioned anxiety earlier, that, you know, there's a very large component, often about 50% of individuals who, after taking medications, still don't have a resolution of symptoms and continue suffering. What percentage? Sorry. About 50%. 50%. Wow. And so, you know, 
Firstly, it's not just about medication. It is more of an integrated approach. And secondly, I think that we just need to consider food more part of the solution, even if it's not the only thing that we're doing. Mm-hmm. I'd love to talk about alcohol and the effects yeah. of alcohol yeah. on the brain and gut microbiome, just different levels and different types of alcohol, so diff- different levels of consumption, time of day, and then the type of alcohol. Yeah. With alcohol, I I like to compare it to coffee. And that's because some people don't go anywhere near coffee, as with alcohol. You know, it's not for them. But others do. And very often, one of the pointers with alcohol is what you add to it. So having a cleaner cocktail is always going to be better for your health. So not adding the extra, you know, simple syrup is simply sugar. So not adding all the mixes and other liqueurs. Having a cleaner cocktail is always going to be a little bit healthier than in moderation. And if it's a problem, you know, seeking help or getting help with it, because especially with COVID, you know, a lot of clients that I was evaluating, even on telehealth, were struggling quite quite a bit because of boredom, isolation, the stress, mm-hmm. you know, being in a large family situation sure. and, and quarantine. So that, that was a big factor. Time of day, if one should never be relying on a glass of wine to help you sleep because it disrupts your sleep architecture. So having, you know, if you're having a glass of wine with dinner, it's not related to your sleep and you're not depending on that to help you sleep. That's different from really leaning on it and um, what you add to it. And then, you know, moderation. That's that's the key with all of these things, even with coffee. Having, if you do consume alcohol, clean cocktails, and in moderation, if you do consume coffee, also what you add to it in moderation. That that tends to be a really good guideline that people can use. And if alcohol is not for you, you know, some people have a little bit and they become chittery and uncomfortable and the effects can be very long lasting. It's related to the nervous system and we can't ignore that. But a lot of my philosophy in nutritional psychiatry, whether it's a type of food or a food group or alcohol or caffeine, is I find that more people do not consume these. So I have to find solutions that are guidance around how can you incorporate it in a slightly healthier way, moderation, and how can you not avoid or give up something that you might enjoy, but do it in a more responsible way. How does wine affect your sleep architecture and how does alcohol affect your nervous system? So... Uh, with alcohol, it taps into the same receptors in the brain as do, say, anxiolytic medications. And um, by disrupting that uh, neurotransmitter system, you, for example, if you say, you know, had a, had gone to a party and you've had too many glasses of wine or something, you may wake up the next morning, not only slightly dehydrated, but slightly jittery. And that's all the impact on your nervous system. When you're leaning on, say, a glass of red wine to bring on that phase where you're feeling more sleepy, it disrupts the different phases of sleep that you go through. And your sleep cycle is meant, together with your circadian rhythms, to help you rest. Rest is a huge part of, you know, how cells heal themselves and you wake up in the morning so you're supposed to feel refreshed. And what the alcohol does is it disrupts which cycle comes first and the order of your sleep cycle so that that's a nicer way of just saying it disrupts sleep mm-hmm. architecture. Wow. And so you wake up, you know, not well rested and you've not had the, the, the REM sleep at the right time. And I always thought it was the sugar. Is it the alcohol? It could be. Definitely be the sugar yeah. content, but the alcohol itself is it you know works on the nervous system. Wow, because so, yeah. I was yeah I always thought it was like the sugar would kind of wake if I I don't drink anymore, but yeah. when I would it would be 
I'd wake up at like 11 or 12 mm-hmm. if I'd gone to bed at like 9 or 10. And I'm like, yeah. okay, what is this? And you yeah. just mm-hmm. feel out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you think the sugar was waking you up. I thought it was the sugar. I'm like, oh, I think it's the sugar. But yeah, it probably is the combination. Yeah, it's, it's oh. definitely the combination. And I think the actual impact on sleep architecture more comes from the nervous system. Wow. Impact. But what are like, sugar's not great too. If our listeners are to go grocery shopping, like mm-hmm. what are your favorite things for people to have for their mental health that they can buy for eating? So, you know, while none of these foods may be a huge surprise, I think there's some that we can tap into that mm-hmm. we haven't done before. I like to think about it in terms of some of the antioxidant groups, like sulfurophane-rich veggies, uh, like your cauliflower, your Brussels sprouts, your cabbage, your asparagus, broccoli, all of those, and actually the broccoli sprouts are super nutritious. So if you can get those at a farmer's market and add them in, they actually are even more nutrient-dense than the broccoli itself. That's a nice group because they're low-calorie, they're rich in the antioxidants that our brain needs, and uh, they're very filling, they're very satiating. So, you know, I love the produce section because there's a lot of stuff that you can get that is um, inexpensive, and if you're willing to do a little bit of prep, like make the salad and things like that, um, they're going to last longer and fill you with fiber because I think it's like two in every 10 Americans eats enough fiber in their diet. Mm-hmm. And what you get fiber from your vegetables, your fruit, uh, lentils, beans, nuts, seeds, healthy whole grains. So uh, that's that's a must for me is spend some time in the produce section. If you don't have time to prep that cauliflower, get it frozen. Just watch that there's no added sauce, salt, or um, syrup in it. And frozen can be just as great because in the United States, uh, veggies are flesh frozen as well as fruit. So it's it's a good alternative to someone who's busy or doesn't want to do all of that prep work. I also like people to think about if they can and if they have access, grass-fed beef, uh, wild salmon if they can. And if and, and if that's out of their budget, then canned salmon is an option. You know, this is a good option. It still gives you those omega-3s and those healthy fats that you need. I like people to not ignore the centiles because there's beans, legumes, lentils, and those canned foods that actually are good options for them. So that's, an, for me, another staple that they need to spend and a little bit of time incorporating legumes and lentils into dishes, which are satiating, budget-friendly, but also really good for their body. Mm. And I like them to pay attention to colors. And this is where it takes me to the spice aisle. You know, spices are like the hidden chemistry in our, in our kitchen because they have so many brain-rich nutrients and they add flavor without the calories. So I usually suggest to people don't get the blends and the mixes because those can sometimes have fillers and other things, and then including salt. But if you just get the pure spice, you can flavor up something and really make it super tasty and cook the same foods in different flavors and uh, still get the brain benefits. So those are... those. What are your favorite spices and what are their benefits? Yeah, so I love uh, turmeric with a pinch of black pepper. The, the black pepper uh, activates the curcumin in turmeric. Which is anti-inflammatory, right? It's anti-inflammatory. It's an antioxidant. It helps. It supports brain cells. It's just... A great addition if you can tolerate it, and if it's something you like. If you don't cook with it, add it to soup, a smoothie, or even a tea. I like spicy foods, so I like capsaicin or uh, you know chili peppers of different kinds. I love you know mint. Actually, I love making a mint tea in the afternoon. It really keeps me a little bit more alert than you know. I'd rather skip an extra cup of coffee, in fact, and have um, have a mint tea. 
I love uh, rosemary with veggies. Mm -hmm. And rosemary actually has been shown to help cognition. So it's a great addition to those things. And then I like some of the uh, more Asian-inspired spices like the cumin and the coriander because I'm used to mm -hmm. cooking with them. And that's how my mom and my grandma cooked. And they're great to add flavor to things like black beans. You know, they just make them more flavorful and interesting to, mm -hmm. to eat. So, mm -hmm. My last question, do you recommend people get like a food sensitivity test too? Because I wasn't sure how the correlation between food sensitivity mm. and mental health as yeah. well. I find that, you know, um, if someone is struggling with with uh, not being able to tolerate food sensitivities, getting a food sensitive test from their allergist or their primary care doctor is probably a good idea before they say engage in discussing how are we going to tweak their foods for their better mental health. The reason is, and I, I you know, I, I feel like I'm seeing so many more patients than ever now in my practice that have food sensitivities or let's say late onset almost allergy in quotation marks because it's not clear if it's a pure allergy or they just can no longer tolerate it. And I do think it's related mm -hmm. to gut health. I really yeah. think it goes back to gut health. So getting it tested and maybe a short elimination of a certain food to see how they feel, both physically and mentally, becomes key. And, and I think the combination of testing um, or elimination and paying attention to healing their gut um, becomes really powerful in, in helping them. And then supplements. What do you think about supplements, supplementing? Are there any ones that you think are good for most people? So, you know, I, I feel like none of us eats a perfect diet. And so supplements become important to fill those uh, specific gaps. In the Northeast, uh, many people may be deficient in vitamin D. You know, you can get 80% of your daily requirement by spending time outdoors, but you might also need a supplement. And But I also believe in test on gas. So check your level with your doctor. And there's a place for supplements. Uh, the ones that I find are helpful for people are depending on what their diet is. I find that individuals who are plant-based might need vitamin B12. Um, not all of them, but some of them. So I think, you know, finding that balance of foods that maybe you don't eat in your diet, if that's uh, there's a reason you don't eat it, but how do we supplement that if you may not be getting the nutrient that you need? Love it. Amazing. This was so good. This was so good. <laughs> I'm so grateful you came and I have your book. It's amazing. It's so Thank easy you. to read and it's okay. just super powerful. And, you know, as someone that's had mental health in my family and even dementia and Alzheimer's, I think this work is so important. Thank you. And I'm so grateful for it. So thank you so much for coming on Almost 30. Yes. Thank oh. you. Thank you so much for having me. It was lovely to meet you guys. Lovely to meet you in person. Thank you. you too. Bye, everyone. Thank you so much, Dr. Uma. I really appreciate you coming on. Again, the book is This Is Your Brain on Food. Thank you, thank you, thank you to our sponsors for this episode. As always, just bringing you brands that we really love and use ourselves. For discount information on any of our sponsors, you can go to almost30.com uh, or check out the show notes. Thanks, y'all. We, we love, love you guys. <laughs> we'll see you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.